Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Matthew Penelope, a.k.a. Matt Penny, is here. We're going to talk all about the best backcourts that we've seen over the course of the college basketball season. And additionally, if one kind of stacks up historically with one of the best backcourts we've seen just ever uh, in our lifetimes... Then we might talk a little bit about Franz Wagner. We might get to James Booknight. We're just going to kind of free roll here because this podcast is going to be like 50 minutes and we've prepared for like three podcasts. So, uh, Penny, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm doing great. Matt Penelope is a, a first for me. So I, I, I'm, I'm well, processing that right now. But it does feel like championship week. I mean, we have Io Dasunmu in a Batman mask. We have Luca Garza's number retired. Sister Jean and Loyola are back, and we had a Texas Tech manager get eligible and take a charge on senior night to cover the under. Like this did, is everything we want out of March Madness and Ma- just, March Magic. You, to be honest, did you feel that charge? Like whenever that guy went down for Texas Tech, did you feel <laughs> that like contact yeah, on it, your chest yourself? Uh, as a former manager turned walk on, it was kind of like uh, that Elliot and ET. Like, you know, <laughs> one's in class and feels this, and Elliot's like, what's going on? And E.T. starts flipping out. I did. It was like, it, it sprung me out of bed, and I'm like, this is awesome. <gasps> How many charges did you take in your career at UMass? Uh, I think one in, like, a, a preseason game, so it didn't count. Uh, so I didn't have many opportunities to take charges, but that was always kind of my goal. I wanted to, like, die for a loose ball and break one of those sideline panels for, like, an ad. I, I didn't really care about scoring. But, uh, oh. yeah, Ty lived out our dream for, for all of us for stepping in, getting eligible that day, and taking a charge. So many people have regrets about not making a shot, like not taking that three whenever they got the chance to go in the game as a walk-on. I feel like your biggest regret is not getting to take a charge in a real game. <laughs> I, I did have a couple baskets. So I mean, once that was established, I think that was kind of the next step. Uh, but just like the process of getting eligible isn't that quick, and it was just so Texas Tech that he gets eligible and just so on brand for what they try to do that he comes in and, and takes a charge and becomes a cult hero overnight. And then, yeah. like, yeah, you're back to being a manager, but enjoy this moment. I love it unconditionally. It's so, so funny to me. Okay, so the place that we wanted to start was I got asked by an NBA scout yesterday. Can you remember a more a better backcourt of two lead guards? So not necessarily two wings uh, of two lead guards starting together than Jared Butler and Davion Mitchell at Baylor. And I like racked my brain like thinking about it. Like before he like kind of made the caveat of two lead guards. Initially he said backcourt. I was like, oh yeah, like Ty Lawson, Wayne Ellington, right? Like that backcourt was incredible like that was so much fun to watch they won a title unbelievable but that didn't really fit what he was saying so he kind of mentioned given the proliferation of the two lead guard backcourt over the course of the last realistically I would say two decades within college basketball I remember I wrote a story at CBS kind of saying that a lot of the best teams within college basketball have essentially two lead guards running the show for them Uh, I believe that was back in maybe 2017 i really this is something that like i've been thinking about for many years and i it really was hard for me to think of backcourts that 
have been better than what Jared Butler and Davion Mitchell have been this year. I mean, have how impressed have you been with those two? Uh, very impressed, but like one that I'll mention here in a second, I don't think they necessarily get the individual recognition because the Baylor renovation, uh, revitalization, renaissance, whatever word you want to use, it's been spread pretty evenly. And even we had Macy Oteague have 10 three-pointers this weekend too. So the shine isn't all just on those guys. And it's kind of been attacked by five or six or even eight guys at a time. Whereas we're also talking about two guys that were first team all big 12 and were both semifinalists for the Naismith defensive player of their trophies. They're second in the country. So what they've done is I think not sliding under the radar, but we haven't necessarily stopped and said like, how good is this backcourt? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I didn't get a chance to go through and look at how many times has it happened where essentially two lead guards on the same team make first team all league. I can't imagine it's been that often. Like that, that's like pretty staggering to me in a number of ways. Uh, I, I just, I'm so blown away by how they complement each other as well. Davion Mitchell is just such a ridiculous defender. He's turned himself into a really good shooter. Uh, Jared Butler is just such a creative force offensively. Like, I kind of think that both these guys have, like, real All-American arguments. Like, they, they kept Miles McBride from West Virginia off of this team because the voters went Austin Reeves, Derek Culver, Cade Cunningham on the first team over Miles McBride. I kind of feel like it was the right call, and I feel like it's an incredible kind of statement toward just how good uh, both Mitchell and Butler have been this year and just how unbelievable uh, they've been able to perform, in, and it's consistent. It's every single time out, too. Yeah, and, and you said they complement each other really well, too. I mean, I would even make the argument that Jared Butler at times is better off the ball, and, and Mitchell yeah. doesn't have to worry about when when he's playing point guard either because a lot of Baylor sets they'll have Butler kind of hit the high post screen opposite and come back to the ball and that's okay for Davion Mitchell or even Macy Oteague to play yep. some primary ball handler stuff and like Jared Butler he had the bounce back after the last three games with West Virginia Oklahoma State and Texas Tech because in that Kansas game where they did lose and they're coming off COVID and didn't look like themselves lost by 13 he had five points of two or nine shooting, but you have other guys kind of pick up the slack and it, it doesn't seem like a, as big as a drop off. They lost the game to Kansas. It's like, oh man, here we go. Here's the slide. But they've been able to kind of regain their standing, their footing within the Big 12. When we saw them play this weekend, it's like, well, maybe this is the team that was pre-COVID stop is back and peaking at the right time. Yeah, so... I guess I just kind of want to pose the question here, and this will be uh, our hashtag embrace debate moment <laughs> of the podcast this week. We need a sponsor for that, yeah. Hashtag embrace debate. Sponsors, please come. Um, I'm sure that we'll do a ad read after this. Maybe they can be the, uh, without even knowing it, the sponsor of the embrace debate segment this week. Um, is this Baylor backcourt of Davion Mitchell and Jared Butler the best one that you can remember uh over the course of the last let's say two decades because you know you're in your mid-30s I'm only 30 now uh I don't remember beyond <laughs> the old 2000 guy, yeah. like yeah. Let, let's just be clear about that uh 
I mean, can, can you remember one? Like, I can remember probably back to 2000, like, vaguely within my memories. Uh, we'll obviously need some help looking up some names here. But uh, is this the best backcourt that you can remember of two lead guards combining and uh, just being unbelievable throughout the course of a season? So I have, I have two sets that would be my kind of embrace debate. Point and and let me... Let me be clear before you give those two sets. We're talking purely college basketball. We're not talking as pros. Yes. College basketball is a start. My first one is going to be D. Brown and Deron Williams from the 2004-2005 Illinois team. They started the season 29-0. They finished 37-2. They lost the national championship game 75-70 in North Carolina, and that team was loaded. They had Sean May, Rashad McCants, Marvin Williams, Raymond Felton. Their average margin of victory was 16 points. Deron Williams ended up being second-team All-American, first-team All-Big Ten, All-Final Four team. D. Brown, first-team All-American, Wooden Award finalist, National Player of the Year by Sporting News. He actually declared and broke his foot in the pre-draft process. We won't get into that. And then I, I do also want to add, it's kind of like the, the third yeah. part of the monster here. They also had Luther Head, who was a second-team All-American. So it's like they could interchangeably play three of those guys and I put them right there with anybody. As just some context, D. Brown, 13 points per game, four and a half assists, 50% from the field, 43% from three. Deron Williams, 12.5 points per game, 6.8 rebounds, shot 43% from the field, 36% from three. And then Luther Head, who somehow becomes like this forgotten man, actually averaged 16 points per game, four rebounds, four assists, shot 46% from the field, 41 from three. That is my uh, my first counter to the Baylor guys. Baylor guys very good, but I would take those guys ahead of them. So great counter. And I think that you're right. I think that that backcourt was better. And I think I found two more actually from the same season that probably were a little bit better. So back in 2002, Duke in Maryland went back and forth the entire year. That was, this was back in the old ACC. Uh, we talk about the old Big East in the 1980s. This is the old ACC back in the early 2000s when Maryland uh, was on its way to a national title. For Maryland, Juan Dixon and Steve Blake, I think, is one of my favorite backcourts that I can remember. Like, it's it's one of those things, like, you know how things that happen when you're between 11 and, like, 13 just get indelibly burned in your brain, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's college basketball and pro wrestling for me, so yeah, I get it. Right. Like Juan Dixon and Steve Blake are indelibly burned in my brain as being just an incredible fun backcourt to watch. Steve Blake with just all the toughness and ability to set the table. Juan Dixon, uh, just an incredible scorer and all around player. Shout out Juan Dixon, who is the coach of Coppin State, I believe right now. Right. Yes. Yes. And then on the other side of it was Jay Williams and Chris Duhon. Now, Jay Williams won National Player of the Year that year. Juan Dixon, I believe, won ACC Player of the Year that year. Uh, anyone who ever saw Jay Williams play, you know, before he was a talking head knows just how incredible he was. He was an unbelievable athlete, three-level scorer. It was incredible. And then Chris Duhon was kind of the Davion Mitchell next to Jay Williams. He was an incredible defender, a great table setter. Uh, could knock down threes when necessary, but it wasn't necessarily quite his skill in the same way as it has become for Davion Mitchell. I mean, those two backcourts, I feel like, um, like I said, just indelibly burned in my brain in a real way. And I think that I would take both of them over uh, Davion Mitchell and Jared Butler. Having said that, 
we still haven't gotten any teams in the past 15 years. So <laughs> well, let's, we'll, uh, we'll get there. Yeah, let's no, try I to get a team. bit more modern, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to turn the clock back even more. But before I do, well, actually, it's, it's like the time same time span. Those sure. games were so good back and forth. And like I, I just remember watching that game, like that miracle minute where Jay Williams has like 10 or 11 yep. points last minute to win and did nothing the first 38 or 39. And, and those rivalries and matchups really did mean something, too. And I love that Duhon. Jay will combo as a Duke fan growing up. My other one, which is close to my Atlantic 10 heart is Delonte Weston, Jameer Nelson. Oh, that's Jones. a good one. Yeah. This, so, so for what it's worth, the NBA scout that I was talking to, that was the combo that he brought up. He brought up, is this the best backcourt since Jameer Nelson and Delonte West? All right. So we're on the, we're on the same page. Uh, I was yeah. not the NBA scout for the record. Uh, they finished yeah. the season, the regular season. I'm sorry. Undefeated. They lost to Xavier in the A-10 tournament and then Oklahoma State in the Elite Eight East Regional Final with a, a late John Lucas, the third three-pointer. Jameer Nelson, 21 points, five rebounds, five assists. He won the Wooden Award, the Naismith Award, the Bob Cousy Award. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He was a 20th pick in the draft. Delonte West averaged 19 points per game, five rebounds, five assists, two-time All-A-10, ends up being a first-round pick as well. I saw those guys when they played at UMass. I was a freshman, and they were uh, they were unbelievable. They were. It, it was kind of like the story of, are they playing a high enough level of competition? Are they going to be able to do it in the tournament? And nearly made the Final Four. But I, I just remember those guys being undefeated, being number one in the country, and thinking that you're going to have a hard time finding two guards played like that together in the same backcourt and have that type of success. Yeah, that that's another one that's just kind of indelibly like burned in my memory. Like I remember that run. I was so mad when they lost in the tournament. Like I was yeah, so I, pissed. Yeah. I remember Jameer Nelson just sitting on the court and like, ah, this is over. It's done. Yeah, that one was tough. Um, I was trying to think back through like the Kansas backcourts. And it's interesting because if you remember, Kansas obviously wins the national title in 2008, has essentially three guards that played a ton of minutes for them. Mario Chalmers, Russell Robinson, Sharon Collins. Chalmers and Collins is like kind of an interesting one, but Collins didn't really peak until later in his career. Like I think that this specific season of Butler Mitchell is probably better than that specific season of Chalmers and Collins. Now you could make the case that if you take the best of Chalmers and the best of Collins, I believe Collins uh, was an All-American, what, two years later, if I remember correctly. Yes, yeah, sounds right. Like, you can very easily make a case that they should be ahead of those two in the totem pole, but I, I just feel like they never had that um, They never had that combined time together. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and people like do that a little bit with the UConn, too, when they say, like, oh, Kemba and Shabazz Napier. It's like they didn't really have that, like, true one-two punch, like, carryover. Like, I don't think Shabazz played as many minutes on the first Kemba run and then he was yep. Kemba was gone by the time for the second one. That Kansas team was what what year? That was 2008. 2008. Yeah, so they also had Darrell Arthur. They also had that was the yeah, and Brandon Rush too. Like it was it was like those guys could beat you more so than I'd say Chalmers and yeah. I I don't think that they peaked, like you were saying, at, at the same exact time, but like a little bit of revisionist history, like you could say there's an argument there to be made. I, I oh. still wouldn't put them in the same category as Illinois and, uh, and St. Joe's. Yeah, I agree. Uh, going forward to 2010, John Wall and Eric Bledsoe 
kind of struck me as one yeah, that's a good made one. sense. Yeah. yeah. I feel like <laughs> they were pretty good. <laughs> yeah, they were okay. Uh, they've panned out, depending on your definition of panning out, but not winning the national championship, despite Illinois didn't win the national championship either. But that was Not even getting to the final four, that Kentucky team. Yeah, don't don't start the, the Big Blue Nation shade, but yeah. I remember that loss, too. Yeah, so do I. That was the Deshaun Butler game, right? That was the Deshaun Butler game? Yeah, but not the not the Deshaun Butler injury game, though, right? No, 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 no. I, if I remember correctly, he, like, went off in that game against Kentucky, didn't he? Yeah, no, I thought you were alluding to the injury. I'm like, I don't no, think the, it was that one when, when Hugs came out and, you know, it was over and he was hugging him. No, the injury came the next game, right? Okay, that, yeah, that in the makes final four, sense. I thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think he was, like, unbelievable in that game against West or against Kentucky. Um, yeah, I mean, just super athletic and unbelievably skilled. And uh, John Wall was certainly better than either Davion Mitchell or Jared Butler have been this year. Like, John Wall was just such a force. <laughs> just, like, completely disproving everything we've talked about. Like, yeah, two top ten picks or two guys late in the first round. Who do you think is a better combo? Yeah, you know, well, Eric Bledsoe wasn't a first-round pick. Bledsoe went, like, 25 or so, if I remember correctly. I was going to say, like, I think that both Mitchell and Butler have been better than Bledsoe was that year, this year. It's just that, like, John uh, yeah, Wall is that, that, that year, yeah. No, he, yeah, Bledsoe went 18th, so it's like Wall and him probably have, a, would say, a, a lower combined score than where Butler and Mitchell are going to be drafted. Yeah. No, I, <clears throat> I think that that's right. I don't really – so, like, it's hard because – I think the Kentucky backcourt was better just because Eric Bledsoe was pretty darn close to as good on defense as Davion Mitchell is. And a hundred times out of a hundred, you're taking John Wall over Jared Butler. Like, I'm sorry, yes, Jared, likely. but yeah. um, just an unbelievable, unbelievable backcourt combination. But you know what? We're still 10 years in the past. Like, I feel like this is when it starts to get hard. Like, I actually don't know that I can remember too too many over the last 10 that i would take over this jared butler uh davion mitchell combination have you have you been able to find one or two no i haven't i i dug deep for like the the greatest hits collection for those two but i I was doing this exercise a little bit earlier in the office and i was like no that's one no they didn't win like those are the two that that kind of stand out the most to me for the last like you said 10 15 years anyway yeah like but 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 where does like I guess it, it's more so like where does this Baylor team get remembered if if they don't win at all? Like are we having if we have this podcast hopefully in five years and we're having this discussion, are we gonna say like, oh, remember those two guys and, and also Macy O. T. Because I, I think what's kinda sort of forgotten about too is that even like last season, Baylor was really good. They were twenty six and four, they had a stretch of, of winning twenty three in a row. It's like where does this kind of Baylor team and Baylor backcourt fall into discussion points i guess down the line if they don't win a national championship so right now over the last decade of the ken palm rankings baylor is the sixth best team of the last decade according to adjusted efficiency margin so i think that baylor is going to have to make the final four at least Mm. to be remembered for being as good as they were this year. And this team was unbelievable this year uh, and still is unbelievable. We shouldn't write them off yet. Um, they went into the second best conference in the country, had two different COVID pauses and still won 13 of their 14 games and didn't really look vulnerable even outside of that second game off of the COVID pause against Kansas. 
Like yeah, and, and and with Kansas too. What what I think people forget is is people have written off Kansas and written off Bill Self. Bill Self can coach. Like that's not like some some slouch where it's like oh you lost on the road. It was a bad loss. Like senior night at Kansas versus Bill Self. It's not like. Even in the best of circumstances, I think we've said, like, within Big 12 play, they're probably not going to go undefeated. They're pretty darn close. But, like, losing to Kansas at Kansas, like, I don't even see that as a as a derogatory mark either. It's like that that's as, as good as a team, a program, and you're coming off COVID pause. Yeah, no, absolutely not. I totally agree with you. Like, no, no problems with that loss. No problems with them having to play a tight game against Iowa State coming off of the COVID pause. Uh this Baylor team genuinely should be remembered as one of the best teams of the last decade in college basketball. No matter where this goes from here, um, if they lose, as long as let's say they get to the Sweet 16 at least, right? Like let's let's not lose in the second round of the tournament here, Baylor, and then make us all look like assholes. But like, <laughs> right? As long as, like this is an unbelievable team. As long as they get to the Sweet 16, I feel like they're going to be remembered as an utterly elite team within the context of the last decade of college basketball. I mean, Butler, Mitchell, Teague, Mark Vital, uh, uh, Chamwa Chachua, who I feel like nobody has figured out how to say the name yet. Come on guys. It's not that hard. I get that it's everyday John, but we can, we can pronounce his name. Uh, and then the emergence of Matthew Meyer has been a really interesting thing to track. So, this team is unbelievable. I think that Scott Drew deserves an immense amount of credit, but uh, even more than Drew, who I think has gotten the lion's share of the credit this year because people always want to anoint the coach, right? They always want to be like, oh my God, what an incredible job he did. And Scott Drew did do an incredible job of uh, fostering this talent and keeping it all together. I mean, these players are ridiculous. They have a shot to have multiple first round picks here and they have multiple guys down the road that I think look like draft picks. But I will I will credit Scott Drew for what they've done in identifying talent via yeah, the transfer sure. market, via uh, just recruiting kids out of high school that that have the chip on the shoulder, that feel like they're overlooked. Guys that transferred and even being at UNLV and thinking they didn't get the right, uh, I'd say, exposure to, to playing their style of play, and they mold them there in Baylor. And, like, I love the Mark Vital story. Mark Vidal committed as a sophomore in high school, and he played on our Under Armour circuit. Mark Vidal was a guy who would, like, be flown in just for dunk contests. Like, that was his game. He was, like, this electric high flyer, this three-man. And now he's a five, 240 pounds. Is that being generous? But like he's more than that, but yeah. Sure, 240 plus. So I was watching two games ago. He had a fast break, and he did a 360 layup. And I was like, if Mark Vidal from high school could see this clip right now, he'd be like, what are we doing? But he means so much to the team. I mean, that Texas Tech game, it was one of my favorite plays of the year where it's a loose ball. He dives out of bounds, saves it to Maceo Teague in the corner. Maceo Teague hits the three. Mike, Mark Vidal flexes. They're both pouring at each other. It's like they're just connecting. It's, it's all the pieces clicking at the right time. Yeah, Mark Vidal is – one of those guys that like I really want to do a deep dive on at some point from a draft perspective because he is like an unbelievable defender. Like I, I know that Davion Mitchell won their defensive player of the year in that league, right? Uh, I think he did, but Mitchell, Vital, and Butler were semifinalists for the national defender of the year. And then I believe Mitchell and Vital are on the finalist list and Butler got cut. Yeah. 
I'll, I'll be honest. I think that uh, Mark Vital is more important to them defensively than Mitchell is. I that's not to like take shots at Mitchell, who's also an unbelievable defender. Uh, deserves every ounce of credit that he gets on that end. But I think Vital is just essentially vital to what they do on that end in every single way. He rebounds at a high level. He is the person that like seems to be communicating switches to them. He's the person who seems to be communicating rotations to them. Uh, he is the guy on the back line who can guard literally every single position. If you need him to guard centers, he's the reason that they can play all of Mitchell Flagler, Butler and Teague together uh, and play super, super small. If you need him to guard twos, he can go out and slide with those guys. He, Mark Vital is just a really, really good defender. I really, really want to go back and see if I can even make a case for him offensively at the next level. Like, I, I honestly am not sure if I can make a case for him offensively at the NBA level, but I really want to because I love everything about that dude. Yeah, maybe at the G League level and, and, and see what happens. Like, the NBA, it's going to be hard, but knowing yeah. what his body type was before, like, now he's using the size to his advantage. If he slims down, he's probably not a five anymore and doesn't really shoot the ball to to be a four but yep. for where he is now and defensively the anchor of that team I mean, all those guys have just gotten better i mean scott drew talked about macy ot he said his his rotations are a lot more crisp this year he's one of the best talkers and communicators they all talk they all point out switches they all make contact and and that stuff is starts really with uh with your center and your guy in the middle who's able to adjust on the fly and, and like you said guard some perimeter stuff and blow up some ball screens and, and that makes a huge difference so just to close the loop on the conversation we were having originally recent backcourts that i think are unbelievable uh ryan archdiakono and jalen brunson came to mind for sure uh that duo i think was ridiculous for villanova in that first title run uh there was another one I had. It was, uh, oh, uh, Ty Jerome and Kyle Guy, I think, is one that could be brought up here. I don't think that they quite stack up, but it also helps when you have yeah. a lottery DeAndre pick and DeAndre Hunter, Hunter. Yeah. next <laughs> exactly. to you. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. makes things a lot a, easier. A guy who's, like, turned the corner in the NBA on playing the three. Yeah, it helps. Right. Um, the Kentucky backcourt of, like, all essentially lead guards of Aaron Harrison – Devin Booker and Tyler Eulis, like uh, Aaron Harrison, I wouldn't call a lead guard necessarily, but I mean, all three of those guys is unbelievable. But Booker off know. the bench too, though. Like he didn't even start, right? Yeah, so like, I know. We're kind of like, we're, we're doing the the thing of like plugging in for our narrative here, but like those guys weren't even the, the biggest minute guys because they spread across everybody. Right. Which makes this conversation like enormously trickier in some way. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know. Could you think of anything else? I thought of De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk, too, but I feel like they don't really even totally fit, right? Right. No. I mean, no matter what you do, when you have a, a list like this and you have college basketball is top five, whatever, generally with, with people with larger followings on Twitter, the people respond before they can read it and say, you better have so-and-so on here. If not, this list doesn't right. make sense. And there's always like eight of them, and one or two, you're like, yeah, that, that probably fits. But I, I think we've nailed it the ones we've laid out here. Yeah, the the last couple I want to bring up are the Russ Smith years at Louisville. Uh, Russ had some really good partners as well. Uh, Terry Rozier as a freshman was a pretty good one. They started Chris Jones next to him, though, that year. Um, that they won the uh, – no, 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 not the year they won the title. Uh, the year that they were, like, the best team in the country and then lost to Kentucky, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, 
the year they won the title, though, it was Russ Smith and Peyton Siva. And that's a really good combination. I don't really think that Siva is quite in the mix with Mitchell and Butler, though, necessarily. No, even though Russ Smith so. was an All-American. No. Um, I think that that's about all I've got is like going back to 2012, 2013. Like I thought about some of those Missouri backcourts where they had like Phil Pressy and um denman and kim english was there but like I, I don't know that those are really quite what we're talking about you know no and and all like fun watches too and, and that was like my favorite part about illinois it was like they played fast they beat you three different yep. ways when they were losing d brown would just press get a steal run full court and score then back up again like that was always appointment television for me too yeah. Uh, the last one that the scout brought up to me was that uh, Lonzo Ball and Aaron Holiday were really fun to watch, too. Um, I don't quite think I can get them into this conversation, though. No. After the De'Aaron Fox performance against Lonzo Ball, and now it's like we should have known, we should have seen the clues. I, I Yeah, I'm not on board there. Yeah. Uh, okay. We'll take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So... When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions, just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. All 
All right. So we have a few different things that we've kind of laid out here uh, in our text messages together. What do you want to go with? I think that we want to talk about Book Knight and Franz Wagner. <laughs> I was like, man, where are we going? Yeah, we can do that. We've, we've kind of had those guys on ice a little bit for, uh, I'd say, a week or two. So if you want to dive in there, it's a good, good yeah, so place. Let, let's do Book Knight because I think this Connecticut team's awesome, first and foremost. Like, they are one them them in Oregon I feel like are the two most like underrated teams that are because of this stupid bullshit season are probably going to be underseeded and whoever ends up with them in Oregon's case is like when Oregon's like the six or seven seed and UConn is going to end up as like a seven or eight seed at best like they might even be on the bubble right from what I understand uh who UConn yeah yeah I don't think I mean I think they're they're pretty firmly in right now and and they're just a different team with book night i believe they're 10 and 2 with them in the lineup the losses were to creighton in overtime where he had 40 and lost by eight to villanova when they were i believe at full strength too yeah so it just a ridiculous team james book has been really good as a finisher this year he's been a really good free throw shooter he draws fouls at a really high clip his athleticism is just readily apparent at every turn I really like what he's brought defensively this year. Like that was one thing that last year I was like, okay, this could kind of turn a little bit where if he doesn't defend this year and doesn't shoot, like, is he really going to be a top 20 pick in this draft? He's really started to defend this year though. Like I really uh, respect the effort that he's put in on that end. I do have some concerns on the jump shot, but I'd love to hear where you're at on book night. Yeah, so let's kind of start at the top, I guess. First team all Big East this week, deservingly so. Somehow he was on the second team in the preseason, which seemed more of like a coach's slight for UConn rejoining the league and not skipping the line, I guess. Uh, He had that elbow surgery in January, and there was like one flare-up in the first game back. It's like, oh, he's going to be out. Here we go again. But has showed no signs of really slowing down. His percentages and averages have hovered around the same. 20 points per game, six rebounds. 47 from the field, 34 from three. Does have three turnovers a game, which could also be from handling the ball so much and playing a little bit out of position at times. And I don't want this to also be a, an opportunity for like people to say, well, he said Cade Cunningham did this out of position. I'm just using Book Knight here. He has a, a 32.2% usage rate, which ranks 21st in the NCAA, so he does have the ball in his hands a lot. He is a, a shifty scorer. He has a great understanding of that hesitation, change of pace. He can step back or do that like crossover pullback to create space. Super comfortable out of mid-range with floaters. And every other game, I feel like he shoots it better from three. He's coming off now a 5-for-9 performance against Georgetown. We had 21 points. I sent a clip to a scout the other day. I think some of it's like footwork too. Like on the catch, yeah. there's a tendency to kind of take a an extra step backwards or, or not a simple plan of one, two, then a shot. And if you look at the numbers, he's actually a much better shooter with movement and not catch and shoot. He's in like the 16th percentile per synergy in catch and shoot and 87 percentile and all jump shots off the dribble, which is a little strange. The positive out of that is he is very good in isolation or off the ball with cuts. There's just some overall tightening, fine-tuning needed to his game, but I really like where he is right now as a prospect. So where would you have him right now on a uh, very early oh, big board? Like this, uh, like this draft, I, it's hard for me to see him outside the top 10. So why? <laughs> because who's going in front of him? Who's really, six, seven, eight, nine? Really, I'm just asking you this because I'm... Um, 
uh, tweeting out that Ira Lee is in the transfer portal. So I'm just uh-huh. asking you to vamp. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all in the transfer portal, though? Can't we just, like, establish that now? Like, there's a new transfer name. It's like, I just assume, unless somebody comes back, that they're that they're transferring. Uh, I, there's a hard five for me, and I've been called out for saying six. I meant the six spot is open, not necessarily there's, there's six guys. So after five, with, with all the question marks... Yeah, it's like who's who's six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So at, at his talent level and what he's been able to do, and he does have some help. I mean, RJ Cole has been better, especially recently. And if those two kind of can click at the same time, they're going to be a, a hard out, and they're becoming like a a sexy pick here in the tournament. Uh, I just kind of believe in his scoring from mid range. Going to be able to score over defenders at the rim with with his floater stuff, with his mid range, with his runners. The jumper's not bad. If he can get that good enough, plus the athleticism, plus a pretty good defender, despite being a little bit slight, and the way he plays, he's going to have to put on a little bit of muscle, but that that's easy enough in the weight room. So I'm just buying that he's going to continue to build on who he is right now. Yeah, I actually agree with you on all of that. While I do have some like very small concerns about the jumper, I think a lot of it is he takes tough shots. And like you said, it's footwork. Uh, I think that the top looks clean. Like, don't you think? Like, I think that he has touch, and I think that everything mechanically at the top looks pretty okay. Yeah, that's why I'm buying. I I just, I don't think it's non-fixable stuff. Sometimes you see a jumper, and you're like, whoa, buddy. Like that, I don't care who your shooting coach is. Like, that's your shot. But I don't think it's these major, let's break down the jumper and, and start from, you know, phase one, like he, he does enough where he can have five, three pointers a game. He's still shooting 34% from three, despite having some offers during the year. Like that's going to come around. I'm not a huge, and you just wrote this in your best shooters article. I believe in a little bit in that the, the parallels between the free throw numbers can kind of leak to the three point stuff. Eventually he is an 80% free throw shooter. So there is some form there. It's just probably more consistency needed. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. Now, one guy who didn't make the shooters list that I've been asked about by a couple people is Franz Wagner at Michigan. And it was funny. I was on with uh, an agent yesterday, a couple of agents yesterday, and they are, they were talking to me about another player that they are uh, like in the mix for representing. Right. And they mentioned to me that, one guy they didn't really get it quite as much with is Franz Wagner. And I've been thinking a lot about Franz Wagner recently. Like I've been trying to kind of figure out where exactly I think of him. And I think that having, cause I have Wagner at like 15 on my board yeah, right now. It's a good spot. Yeah. And I think that it just kind of goes to show just how thin the line is between like 15 and 25. Right. In, oh, in a draft like this. More. I'd say like 10 and 25, but yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, because there's like a chance that like Wagner just kind of doesn't work at the next level, I think. I think he will. Like, let me be clear about that. Uh, his off-ball intelligence, his defensive acuity, like knows where to be in passing lanes all the time, knows exactly how to play gap defense, knows uh, just every single thing in terms of where he needs to be on the backside of an action. And he causes havoc that way. Plus he shoots 37, 38% from three at six foot nine. Like to me, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go full Bill Simmons style cross-racial comparison here. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
like to me, it's like a Robert Covington skill set where I don't really know that I want him putting the ball on the deck. I do think he's a better passer than Covington for sure. But I think that just the ability to defend off the ball and the ability to shoot is going to make him an impact NBA player. Having said that, I'm not, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure what the, my concern is like, if he just gets pushed around at the NBA level, does this work? I, I'm a believer and he's up to about 40% from three now. And I do think he's undervalued at 15 is fair. I just mean, generally speaking, because I also undervalued him and talked to a few people about the same thing too. For me, it's because his game doesn't always like pop. It's not always like this wow factor game. He's really solid all around. It's like, it's not going to be a, a dunk in the lane. It's more likely to be a, a floater or a weird runner. But when you when you dive in a little bit, he's in the 90th percentile or higher of all college players in post-ups, cuts, off-screens, offensive rebounds. So in the NBA, yeah. it's like if, if your shot's not falling, if you're not the central focus of an offense and you can still score your points that way, you're going to be able to find a way to get on the court. And he... I really like the way he manipulates ball screens, and he established a pretty high-level two-man game with Hunter Dickinson. He comes off there. He's a really great passer, especially on the move. Just to call out to that last game versus Michigan State, I really thought it was like the encapsulation of who he is. It's He, like, lulls you to sleep all game, and then he, when he attacked, it's hard to stop. Like, in three straight plays, he came off a screen away from the ball, and then another was set by Dickinson. He caught it. It was a quick pocket pass for an and one. Great. Next play, it was a straight pick and roll with Dickinson for a basket. Following one, uh, he hits a deep three. So he, he does a lot of things well. It's just it's not always going to be here's a Cade Cunningham 40-point game, here's uh, a 25-point game on the road, and, and they do a good job of kind of like spacing the court and, and who gets shots and touches, and, and Livers is going to have his games too. Um, but but I think that he's come around to me as a prospect because how much he's turned on in February too. He had 20 and seven against Rutgers, 21 and six against Indiana, had 19 and six the first time against Michigan State. I'm believing that this thing actually pans out, even just a, a rotational player, which isn't a bad thing. So, do you have any concern that his just high center of gravity is going to make him a bit of a target for teams to take advantage of on the ball? Yes, and I think for most rookies that that's how it starts too. I mean, when you have veteran coaches and vets on the floor, they're going to try to isolate you right away and go at you and see how how you react and how you play within the team concepts defensively. I was worried about his foot speed a little bit, but I also think he's strong enough, versatile enough to to switch here and there too, where he won't be on a complete island if he has to take somebody else on on a screen. So it's funny. I've been thinking about down on him. I'm not like, I I think the translation is just like very simple and very clean and easy. Right. And I've been thinking about him like next to another guy in Michigan right now, Aaron Henry, right. Who's been incredible to end the season and Aaron Henry, similarly to Wagner, although different, uh, very, very good defender. Aaron Henry is like a way better on-ball defender, and it's just like a monster on that end. And I think he's one of the best defenders in the country on the ball. Uh, Wagner, one of the best defenders in the country off the ball. Henry has some interesting like catch-and-shoot numbers, which are there, but also just very clearly going to work athletically at the next level, right? Like, we, we don't have to worry about Aaron Henry getting pushed around. We don't have to worry about him um, getting out-toughed. You know what I mean? With Wagner, like there's a little bit of that, but Wagner has the easier translation as a shooter. So I would love to hear kind of where you're at on 
Aaron Henry versus Franz Wagner because with the way that Henry has closed the season, I think he looks like a late first round pick right now. And I've been thinking about those two just in the way that their games like translate specifically to the next level. Well, when you have the, it's interesting too, because they just, Michigan State and Michigan has played like essentially back-to-back games against each other. And for Aaron Henry, it's like when you get the good Aaron Henry, the Aaron Henry from earlier in the year we saw versus Duke when he's slashing down the middle of the lane and dunking on people's heads and then defending and he's strong, can switch, can hit a, a three or two. Like, yeah, I'm there. I'm with it. I'm on board. It's it's always just the the shooting has been the swing set for me where for Wagner, like I trust he's going to get his buckets or, or his points. Like I said, whether it be a, a quick post up, a cut off a screen, setting a screen, my Aaron Henry pro concern is if he ends up offensively on an island and they give him space, he can't really necessarily shoot or he's not consistent enough shooting, the lane is filled, what's he going to do? Whereas for Wagner, it's like right. he's going to reverse the ball, he's going to set a screen, maybe he'll face cut when someone's sleeping. I trust Wagner's game a little bit more right now than I do for Aaron Henry. Yeah. No, I think that that's all true, but I also just keep coming back to like, Man, I love Aaron Henry and how tough he is. And I love the way that he's just like put Michigan State on his back as this team has needed it this year. Like Franz Wagner, Michigan needs him. Like, don't get me wrong. But Franz Wagner is what? They're probably second or third most important player, right? I think he's better than Isaiah Livers. So let's say second most important player behind Hunter Dickinson. Like Aaron Henry is everything, for yeah, Michigan you get State the, right now. You get the Michigan State bench, benches can be a little dicey at times, yeah. Right. And Aaron Henry just went out and beat Michigan. He beat... Split, uh, yeah. One-on-one. Sure, yeah. He beat Ohio State, and he beat Illinois, and was either the Ken Palm MVP in all those games, or dropped 20 points, five rebounds, and five assists in the Illinois game. Like And, and, and pulled them back into the tournament hunt. Man, like they were out. Like people wrote off Michigan State. I mean, I don't, I don't know how hard we wrote them off, but when they went on that little yeah. dip there, people said not only were the was Michigan State dead, but like all blue bloods were dead. I mean, they had, they had a stretch where they lost like four in a row twice early in the year, and their wins in the middle were against Nebraska and Rutgers. And people were like, yeah, now the season's over. And then you rattle this off, you get hot end of February into March, and it, if you split versus Michigan, that's not exactly like a, a demerit there either. Like they're a top right. three, four team in the country. Right. Um, all right. I- I'm going to be thinking about the Henry Wagner thing for a while because it's it's very do, tough. Do you think that's a real debate? Do you think they're close enough in draft range that like that's even like a, a discussion teams are having right now? I think that it's a reasonable question, too. Uh, <laughs> I'm painting you in a corner right now. You're just you're daydreaming about Aaron Henry and I'm, I'm deflating those dreams as quickly as I can. Well, I. I will say this, like, just because they played these last two games here, I guarantee you that it's a discussion that's come up. Just yeah, it's like, like it's it's an easy film slice, right? It's like, hey, right. chop this game up for the last, whatever, 80 minutes of, of game time. And it's funny, like, Wagner was amazing in the first game, and then Henry was amazing in the second game, right? Like, it was, they each had, like, one real, like, blow-up game among those two. Yeah, and Wagner um, was quiet, quiet until the end of, of one of those there too. Yeah, um, just a just a tough tough conversation. I think the teams all would have Wagner ahead right now. Maybe maybe seventy five percent of teams would have Wagner ahead right now. But it's uh, it's a fascinating conversation. I think for sure, trying to figure out where exactly 
uh, those two sit with one another. Yeah, um, I'm team Wagner right now, but uh, Michigan State, if they're known for anything, it's for these these runs in March that don't make a lot of sense, or, or maybe it does <laughs> when, you re- when you really deep dive into what they're doing. Okay, so the last thing we all, we've been doing is one guy that we feel like has not been getting a ton of attention, highlighting that player and talking about him a little bit more. My guy is going to be Kessler Edwards, who likely just finished his season with Pepperdine uh, yesterday. Could have been his last game of his career at Pepperdine. Um, He's a junior, so he doesn't have to leave necessarily. I don't know what he's going to do, but... I love Kessler Edwards. I know you do. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, I know. I know you have the poster hanging up. I I know. I get it. Yeah. Over his last, they played two games in the WCC tournament, 21, 11 against Santa Clara. And then I thought he had his best all around game of the year against BYU in the semifinal and overtime where it dropped 20 points, nine rebounds, five assists, had a block and a steal was really good defensively in that game. Uh, Just all around, if he can pass like he did against this BYU team, he's like a definite NBA player, I think. Uh, where are you on Kessler Edwards? Yeah, I like him. Uh, I'm not as in love with him as you are just by the numbers in double figures and all but two games this season. I do like that he creates a ton of space, and this was especially in the BYU sure. game I was just watching, with like that aggressive jab step he has. Like The jab step is yep. like violent, and it gives him enough space to get a shot off. One kind of like tweak concern. A lot of his shots when he misses tend to be short. So it's like when you extend it out to NBA three, is is that an issue? It, it seems in, in a positive sense to have sped up his release over the course of the season. Like I watched him early in the year and then again today, and it, like it it seems to come off a little bit faster, a little bit less mechanical than it did in the past. I do like his ability to score from mid range, kind of on that move. He has that hard stop on a dime pull up. He can post up smaller players and, and when he does he has a, a good sequence of fakes bumps spins he's grown on me a little bit uh, later as, as the season progressed probably still second roundish for me but you do like that he, he ends with back-to-back 20 point performances wish we could see him a little bit more but uh, a 24 game set is enough film for us to kind of break down and evaluate here in the next few months yeah for sure uh who is your guy Oh, I have two here, and I think I'm going to go with like a little bit more of a mainstream pick. If that if that works for you, yeah, of course. Do your thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna go Trey Murphy the third from Virginia. Sure. So just to, just as a quick backstory, started his career at Rice. He played two seasons, averaged eight points per game, then close to 14, shooting 39 percent from three. This season at Virginia, he's averaging 11 points per game, shooting 52 percent from the field, 45 percent from three. 92% of free throw line. I believe you had him on your kind of best shooters list there that, that you just published today. I did. Yeah. There was a, uh, a Richmond Times Dispatch story about him. It said Virginia actually started recruiting him as a high school junior. They didn't pull the trigger because he was six foot four, 150 pounds, late Grossberg, late bloomer, and every someone's the word. He's six foot eight. And he, he got his waiver late. He actually was going to redshirt this year, put on some weight, getting the strength and conditioning program at Virginia. Everyone was approved to play. So he, he's thrown right into it. Now he's about six foot nine, long arms, uses length pretty well off the bounce to extend and maneuver around the rim. He'll rip through and attack at times and look like he's going to tear off the rim. Very good at running baseline to baseline to make plays. He'll cut back door when his man is denied. He's fluid enough to catch and finish. He can pick and pop for the perimeter and shoot. Uh, handles the ball well for his size and, and really picks his spots. He's only taken double-digit shots in four games this year, and he's in the 99th percentile in points per possession at 1.245. Has to do more. 
creating a shot and his defense has to get better. And, and he said in that article that he didn't play defense for the first 18 years of his life. Uh, but definitely getting there, popping up at the, the end of the first round. And I loved after the press conference the other day, he, he had two back-to-back bad games. NC State, he had uh, two points, which followed up a four-point game against Duke. And it's a three-game losing streak. And he said his mom politely texted him and told him he sucked. And he just had to, like, get better. Love and, it. and he did. Yeah. Anytime mom can get you going and get you motivated. But very intriguing. I, I didn't come into the year thinking we'd be talking about him as a first-round pick. But he uh, he has, he's made a real case. Yeah, like, I, I will have him. I have a mock draft coming next week. Uh, I haven't decided yet if I'm going to, like, list him in the mock just because I, I don't know what he's going to do at the end of the day. But if I do, I'm probably going gonna have him somewhere in the top 45 maybe the top 50 like the number of like calls and texts i get about trey murphy uh very very high Uh, a lot of people are very curious about trey murphy uh this year so uh, i'm i'm also intrigued i am also very intrigued in what trey murphy is going to look like uh in the later portion of this season as much as anything yeah, and look, late bloomer probably sells basketball ahead of him. If this were, in fact, a redshirt year, like who knows what it would have looked like next year if he that was his first year playing at Virginia, too. All right. Penny, I have to go take my dog. Uh, she is she might have a little bit of a flea action over here in Australia, so I have to take... <laughs> the real-world problems, yeah. I have to take the dog to the vet. Do you have any uh, any strong takes before we get out of here? How what what's my time limit? Do you, can you press like two minutes on the clock? What's what's yes, the score? Yes, please say? give me give me two minutes. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're talking our, our our best tandems, our best best court backcourt duos. Sure. I do want to mention uh, an Ampavelli tweet about the Space Jam box score that's making their rounds around the internet, and uh, <laughs> he called out that Pepe Le Pew was a bum because he only had two points. So with with Jordan going twenty two for twenty two for forty four points and. Bugs Bunny going five for five with ten points. I think that that backcourt duo deserves a little bit of recognition. And the the real reason I bring it up is because the comments on that post are, are what make the internet beautiful. Uh, Foghorn Leghorn had a bad game, and one of the comments was, "You think Foghorn size coming off the bench, he'd be able to score some damn points?" Uh, Foghorn had zero points, two turnovers. He got burned alive. Tough day at the office. Uh, Twee Bird didn't score. It's a Twee Bird out here doing cardio. And then uh, my probably my favorite was the Toon Squad invented small ball. <laughs> um, God, what a beautiful movie! Are you a Space Jam fan in general? I'm not as big like, uh, of course I'm a fan, but I'm not like uh, one of these diehards that's counting down the day to, to Space Jam too. But it, it's just yeah. funny how now years later somehow either someone makes a fake box score or really sits down and watches the movie and says like, yeah, Foghorn did nothing out there today. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, have you watched any movies before I get out of here? Any anything good that you've uh, seen? Movies? No. TV series. We did uh, Little Fires Everywhere last week. Okay, I've not watched that yet. I've heard mixed really? things. Really? Okay. What did you think? Yeah, yeah, mixed things. It was eight episodes. I think it was eight episodes. Six I really liked, and I thought it kind of went off the tracks a little bit. Episode okay. seven and eight. Interesting. Okay, I watched um, I watched The Vigil, which is like a weird horror movie. Which, okay, you're you're you like the weird, yeah. Well, Laura loves horror movies, so I end up watching a lot of these weird horror movies. This one was pretty good. Uh, this one was like legit, very eerie and scary. Uh, I I would suggest watching it 
to people who like horror movies. Um, I almost like don't want to say anything because I feel like horror movies are something you just kind of have to experience without knowing much going in. Uh, I would recommend The Vigil. Uh, and then I watched Nomadland, finally. Yeah, how was, was that? How was that? <sighs> best picture, right? For uh, Was it Golden Globes? The Golden Globes gave it best picture. I <laughs> The Golden Globes gave it best picture. I did not, damn it. No, I, I liked the movie. I thought it was really good. I thought it was really powerful. Uh, I thought Francis McDormand was very good. Like, it's definitely the best movie that I've ever seen where Francis McDormand shits into a bucket. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, what, 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 like, are there others on the depth chart? Have I missed the, I don't want to see them, but like, I didn't know there was like other options to put on there. Yeah. Like it's a hundred percent the best movie where the movie starts with <laughs> Francis McDormand pissing by a street sign. I don't think that's going to make the poster that they, they push out for award season to vote for it. Like it, it was good. It just like got into the whole like misery porn thing where it's like, yeah. Oh, you know, her life is really hard. And the movie, the points where it focuses on like the interaction, like the very human relationships that she has, I think it's like staggeringly good. I just thought that they maybe like tilted it maybe 10% too far toward like, let's watch her in misery. Uh, let's, let's watch Francis McDormand um, stare off into the camera uh, mournfully. So it, like into the wild pants. without the cool factor. Uh, uh, this was better than into the wild. I thought. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was. It's a good movie. It's like I liked Judas and the Black Messiah better. I liked The Five Bloods better. I liked Promising Young Woman better. Um, probably one of the top twenty movies I've seen this year. Nomadland for sure. It's a great film. Um, wouldn't say it would be best picture for me. Yeah, well, it, it sometimes awards they can split that and not win the Oscar, so there's still time. There's there's still time for Judas and the Black Messiah. <laughs> there's hope. still time for somebody to come up with a, a new movie, stream it, and blast onto the scene. Shout out Daniel Kaluuya. Also tried to figure out a way to get Levance Fields into the conversation earlier about oh, best backcourt. You had it. Best backcourt. You could have said anybody. I just would have nodded along because I I prepped for like two all time. You're like, what do you think? A 2012. I'm like, yeah, sure, it's great. Yeah, I think that Levance's best year was, like, with Jermaine Dixon, unfortunately, if I remember correctly. Um, I don't think it's unfortunately, but yeah. Yeah, so, like, you can't you can't really toss Levance Fields into the conversation here until the end because Levance Fields is an absolute legend. Shout out, Levance Fields. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We'll be back next week with more. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.